Elena, we're going to uh, destroy Wellesley tonight. <laughs> um, we've, we decided to do that once in a while. And Christina, um, we're like blood. Um, Christina is an, not just a friend, she's more like my family. It's wonderful. It's the first time we've read together, so it's kind of awesome. I've known her for a while. So, um, The Secret History of Las Vegas. So, um, you know, I write strange books. Uh, uh, African, West African boy soldiers, Elvis impersonators, uh, men who cross-dress as the Virgin Mary in East LA. Um, and so I thought I'm going to write a normal book because I wanted to sell some books. <laughs> and so I thought I'd write a thriller. And so I thought, why not a thriller about conjoined twins who may or may not be serial killers? <laughs> and someone pointed out to me that that's not quite so normal. I don't know. Um, so they're about, it's, the book is about multiple things, but at its heart it is a thriller. It's about this conjoined twins, fire and water. Water is six foot tall. He's just beautiful, you know? He's like Brad Pitt, you know? Have you seen Brad Pitt? You know, I once interviewed Brad Pitt actually for Hollywood Reporter, and I wanted to punch that motherfucker. He was so good looking. You know what I mean? It's like you just want to hit him so his nose just, you know what I mean? So that, that's all I could keep thinking throughout the interview. He was being very nice, but I kept thinking, I should just punch you. But anyway. Enough about my um, self-loathing. But, um, <laughs> but, um, so that's kind of what water looks like. But water is like Rain Man from, from the movie Rain Man. He, he speaks only in factoids. And he says weird things. So you ask him, uh, what time of day is it? And he says things like, only humans and horses have hymens. Um, <laughs> so factoids that are not only irrelevant, but also completely bizarre and weird. Um, and, war, uh, and fire is a parasitic twin that's 10 inches long that's growing out of his side. A head, two arms, and a cowl that he puts on over. But, but fire is, um, is a philosopher and a, and a crazy theorist and won't stop talking. And he swears a lot. Um, and so my brother says that I am fire. But um, they're found in Lake Mead with some blood uh, in a, in a car, by their car. And there's been a series of... Uh, homeless men dumped near there, so they're basically arrested. But since there's no real evidence, the police decide to uh, hold them under uh, what they call a 1550, 1551, which is a 72-hour psychiatric watch. And the psychiatrist who's interviewing them is Sunil Singh, who used to live in South Africa, but now works in Las Vegas for the Desert Palm Institutes. And he's been chosen because he's an expert on psychopathic behavior. In fact, he's working for the military on a project to weaponize psychopaths. Uh, something he picked up when he worked as a, as a not so nice torturer for the South African government. And so the book is really, I suppose, a very normal thriller. Um, it's all about you know, the nuclear bomb tests in Vegas, all these sorts of things. So, so it's, about, it's about really, uh, for me, the intersection of things. We could talk about that more in the Q&A. I just wanted to set that up. And so um, it's dark, but you know, I'm, I'm African, and we're dark in interesting ways. And, and to, to, to give you a sense of how, how we handle darkness, I was going to tell you a joke that comes from South Africa. So uh, post-apartheid, it's like the day after Nelson Mandela's inauguration as president, a small plane is leaving uh, Pretoria. It's an eight-seater. It's taking the same passengers it brought in from the homelands to witness the inauguration. There are eight people, six white South Africans and two black South Africans, a man and his son. So 30 minutes outside of Pretoria, one of the engines goes out, 
And the captain comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we've lost an engine. Uh, we basically have a weight issue, and so in the spirit of the new South Africa, I'd like to ask for volunteers to jump off the plane. And nobody moves, and so he says, well, keeping with the spirit of the new South Africa, let's go alphabetically. With all the Africans on the plane, please jump off. And nobody moves. And so he says, well, all the blacks on the plane, please jump off. And nobody moves, and he says, well, all the coloreds on the plane, please jump off. And nobody moves. So at this point, this little black boy turns to his father and says, Father, if we're not African and we're not black and we're not colored, what are we? And the father says, today, my son, we are Zulus. <laughs> so that's what we do. So I'm going <laughs> to... So it's the joke told to me by the South Africans. Uh, so I'm going to read a section called Fairy Tale, and it's about a young... Sunil Singh, and it's set in Soweto in the 70s. What possible harm can a story do, you ask yourself, as you fetch the small photo of your father from the mantelpiece? You don't have a fireplace, so it really isn't a mantelpiece, just a rickety shelf on the wall. And there, in that small cramped living room with the bare cement floor painted red by your mother, because, as she says, poverty is no excuse for uncleanliness, no harm at all, you tell yourself, as you nearly knock over the small plastic vase that holds the plastic flowers your father gave your mother on their first date. You have seen her dust around it carefully every Sunday, wiping each petal with a soft cloth while she sings softly under her breath. You write the vase and you dash into the kitchen, although even to you that word seems too big for this space. Here, you say, showing the woman the picture, She's stirring a pot of beans on the stove in the small kitchen come pantry. This is my real father, you say. I know that for a fact, you insist, although no one is arguing. The one in the fairy tale you're about to tell is your father too, but you don't say that. I mean, he can't be your real father if he's in a fairy tale, can he? It's just a story, like Red Riding Hood, and that isn't real, and telling it never hurt anybody, did it? Although, if the truth be told, Red's big mouth did alert the wolf to grandma, and though everything worked out really well in the end, there can be no joy in being eaten by a wolf, swallowed whole, even if you are old, even if it is temporary. Like the nine-year-old boy in the homelands that Drum Magazine says was swallowed whole by a python and bit his way to freedom right through the snake's belly from the inside out. Tell me more, the woman says, and each time you have lunch, since you first told her the story, she presses you to tell it again, and you want to because she comes to you while your mother is still at work and feeds you, and you want to because she's your mother's special friend. It's the same every time. You always begin with the photo that is your real father, not the father in the story, because what harm can it do? And what a rarity, a grown-up who wants to hear the stories of a child, and not just any grown-up, but a white woman too, although that is not immediately obvious when you look at her. She looks more colored than white, but this is South Africa in the 70s, and who can tell for sure? This you can understand because your mother is Zulu and your father is Indian, but there is nothing clear about that when people look at you, especially in this land where you are what your father is. But only women surround you, so there is no clear proof that you are who you want to be, especially since everyone thinks you are just another Zulu brat with a father lost to the mines, the war, the struggle, the bottle, or all of them. And this story your mother tells is a lie that makes her not the slut she really is. And this photo of a Sikh man in a turban, this photo could not be real, because who would admit to a relationship like that, one that clearly broke the anti-miscegenation law? 
And you know children are just being cruel when they say all this. You know it's not true because your mother told you it isn't, but it hurts nonetheless. And then your mother adopts this strange woman who claims she is white and brings her home and says, here is your Auntie Alice, even though everyone else calls her White Alice. So what harm telling this story? And like always, like a game she plays with you, this lonely only half-child starved for attention, she asks, have you ever seen your father? And you say, no, but he's a hero, just like the father in the story. And then White Alice says, tell me the story then, Sunil. Tell it to me. You know I love it. And she listens, wrapped, moving only to keep the beans from burning and sticking to the pan. And then you begin, long ago and far away, but today and so forever, there lived a brave man. And then one day a big ogre invaded his land. He was strong, a strong evil ogre from a land far in the north where the sun hid its face. At first the people said to the ogre, why not? At first, the people said to the ogre, there is plenty of land to share. Why not share? But the ogre began to kill everyone. So the warrior fought, fought the ogre, but it was too powerful. So the warrior fled, escaped to the land of the Shona, a powerful but kind people to the north. And there the warrior made his home, training other men who also escaped to the land of the Shona, driven off by the ogre, how to be warriors. And where does he live in the land of the Shona? White Alice asks. He lives by a big baobab tree, you say, on an island that looks like a mudfish in a big sea called Kariba. There he and other impis train and grow strong to become better warriors, and they will return soon to defeat the ogre. It is a short story, but with each telling you add detail. The dusty road that leads through the mystical forest of Chete Safan, which is the name of a powerful witch who protects all who dwell there. The strange Sibalians who roam free and are powerful medicine men who can fly to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. The reeds by the water's edge that hid the magical fish-shaped island from view like the ones that hid Moses as a baby. And then while you stuff your face with beans and bread, sipping delicately on the Coca-Cola you aren't allowed, but which is part of your secret, White Alice spreads the map out and asks you to tell her the story again, pen poised over the map to mark something. And with each telling, the map gets more and more marks. And today, like all other days, she draws lines across the map that has Rhodesia printed on it in big letters. She draws lines intersecting the Chatan-Safan area with the small town of Sabilia on the shores of Lake Kariba, looking, searching for an island shaped like a mudfish or a whale. But it is only a story, and what harm can it do? And if your mother trusts this white woman who looks colored, and if she wants to hear your fairy tale, then what of it? And then a few days later, you come home from playing to find your mother crying on the floor, kneeling as if in prayer, shoulders heaving, a telegraph lying like a dead moth beside her. You know someone has died. That's the only time telegrams come to Soweto, and you know better than to ask any questions, better than to approach her. So you sneak to your room and you listen to her prowling and muttering to herself as she deduces the mystery and you hear the terrible words that confirm a fear that until now has sat in the pit of your stomach gnawing away. How did White Alice know the truth, she says, asking herself, was it Sunil? Was it Sunil's story about his father, about where he was hiding, that led Alice to the truth? And you know she has put it all together, and you realize that this was no fairy tale, even though she said it was, said the word in Zulu, in Ganakwane. This was no mere tale. 
Your father was the father in the story, and he is real. He was the head of an armed ANC faction, launching guerrilla attacks on shopping malls to bring down apartheid, and he fled to Rhodesia to escape, and he was hiding in an ANC training camp on an island. The fairy tale contained the directions, and White Alice finally figured it out on a map while you ate beans and bread and drank Coca-Cola and told your story. And although you tell yourself you could not have known the truth, you know this is a lie. You know because you were four when your mother first told it to you, because your father left when she was still pregnant with you and you needed that story. But now you are 12 and if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then you are old enough to debate your elders in the temple and certainly in Soweto in the 70s. To be 12 is like being 20. But there is still a four-year-old who misses his father, a father he has never seen and who needed someone to hear his story. This is what you tell yourself. But you hear the terrible whispered truth as your mother prowls the house like a hungry ghost. And White Alice, who was once white but turned colored because of a sickness. White Alice, who lost it all, her husband, her kids, her nice home in a white suburb, her white pass card, her privilege, and had to live in Soweto like a kaffir. White Alice, whom Dorothy had taken in, taken to, a fellow lost soul. Alice had betrayed her. Stolen Sunil's story and day by day reconstructed the truth of truth she sold to the secret police in the hopes of getting her life back, her kids, her husband, her home, her whiteness, and who wouldn't, who wouldn't, Dorothy muttered, and still, and still. And now her husband and many other men dead, and Sunil without his father, not even a mythical one. And all of this because of a story, a story in the mouth that told it. And she, Dorothy, was responsible for this. She had told many stories. She was good at stories. Her mouth was a storytelling one. And the last sound you hear that night draws you into the kitchen, and you see your mother sitting there, shoulders shaking with sobs. And terrified, you approach, terrified because you have never seen her this way, this woman whom everyone deferentially calls Nurse Dorothy. And then she looks up when you call to her, and you scream. You don't scream because of the mascara running down her face in black witch tendrils, or the rouge of her cheeks smeared with tears and sweat. It is her mouth that terrifies you. She has sewn it shut the needle still dangling from a piece of black surgical thread. Not a mouth at all, but flesh, meat, raw and bleeding. And so you run, run to White Alice's house. And then the men come in an old ambulance and take your mother. And though there is a murderous rage in her eyes when she sees White Alice, there is also an understanding, gratitude for this gift of the men dressed in white uniforms. And Dorothy looks from you to White Alice, and because her mouth is still sewn shut, the women can only exchange looks. Yes, White Alice says, yes, I will take care of Sunil. Again, that murderous rage and gratitude, then Dorothy is gone. You are 12. You never tell your story again. Johnny 1010, who lives down the street at number 1010, says, Do you know why your mother sewed her mouth shut and then got taken to the crazy house? You know better than to answer. You know the children can be cruel. Thank you. This is such a treat um, to be here at Wellesley and with Chris, who I consider my hermano. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, I thought I would read maybe little sections. It's hard, as we both know, to pull excerpts, long excerpts out of novels. And 
And this book is told kind of episodically. Uh, it veers back and forth between the perspectives of this El Comandante, this fictional Fidel Castro, as well as this octogenarian Miami exile, Goyo Herrera, who uh, seems like his sole purpose in life is to stay alive long enough to see the son of a bitch in, Miami, you know, in Havana die. That's his perspective. Um, uh, and the book is also uh, punctuated and, and interspersed with a rabble of other voices. Uh, at one point in the course of writing the book, I felt like I was being held hostage by these two macho men. It's a very priapic book. Um, and, um, and I thought, I've been avoiding these men my entire life, and here I am. What, why did I choose this? I, and uh, so I... I do what I often do when I'm stuck on a book about Cuba is I went back to Cuba just to hear the other voice, hear other voices. And um, so I, uh, I was back in Cuba for about a, a m month in 2011 and it was just uh, fantastic for me to hear what people are joking about, what people are irritated about, what the, the current songs are, all of these things. I, I guess it's my old journalist self, but that give a lot of texture. And so these voices, a series of these voices are also rupturing, contesting, combating the official histories that these two men represent, uh, one on the island through El Comandante and one off the island as Goyo Herrera. So I'll read a little bit from, uh, I guess, from everybody here. Um, um, one of the, the fun things for me, uh, I know you've heard this before, Chris, so I, forgive me if I read it again, but um, uh, one of the fun things for me in, in my Fidel Castro immersion program was to try and imagine him um, as a kid. How, how does, I made, made up converse, make up conversations, I make up things, I, I studied him very deeply and then I shelved it and then still tried to create, uh, you know, with that essence, uh, a fictional character. And, uh, and so um, I'm gonna just start off with uh, El Comandante as a four-year-old. Uh, looking back, looking back, uh, where is that little section here? Um, just a, a little musing on what, what this, uh, what El Comandante might have been like as a kid. And, uh, you know, he's always very big on like, no one has the biggest, no one has bigger cojones on this island than I do. That's a kind of a refrain of his. But he remembers um, uh, when he was four years old, the first time he saw his father naked. So this is a page on that. The tyrant recalled his first vision at age four of Papa's prodi prodigious binga, steaming like a lo locomotive after a hot bath and flanked by grapefruit-sized balls, or so they seemed to him, that hung confidently, hirsutely, where his thick thighs flared. That same evening, as his mother bathed the little despot-to-be, taking care to wash the pink butt of his manhood and dust it with enough talcum powder to make it look like a lump of sugared dough. He worked up the courage to ask, Mommy, will all of me grow? <laughs> his puzzled mother had helped him into his calzoncillos before it occurred to her what he was asking. Ay, mijito, your pinga will be the greatest in all the land. <laughs> in all the Americas, perhaps in all the world. The boy was cautiously pleased. Okay, the greatest, but will it also be the biggest? 
His mother grinned, eyes shining, and brought her lips so close to his that he inhaled the garlic from that night's ahiaco stew. Don't you doubt that for a second. The pint-sized tyrant's chest filled with pride, and he strutted off to bed with big dreams, the biggest of all. He imagined his pinguita growing and growing until it floated high in the skies, a massive flesh-toned dirigible draped with parachute huevones and a proud snout that served as the control room for the whole impressive operation, and that nobody, not even the Yankees with their warships and gun barriers, would ever dare shoot down. Good night, mi amor. His mother kissed him on the forehead and gave him an encouraging pat. Sleep with the angels. Good night, mommy. And with that, the pint-sized tyrant rolled over and fell deeply, happily asleep. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I just have way too much fun skewering Cuban men. So if you're, are there any Cuban men in the audience? All right, that's, this is a good thing. That'll loosen me up even more. Um, um, all right, so let me... Um, I think I'm going to go over to the other side of the Straits of Florida with Goyo for a moment. And um, Goyo, I should probably tell you, let's see here. Um, he's in his 80s. His wife recently died. He's kind of, you know, typical philanderer. Um, he's got a thing going with the local teller. Uh, he has also a son who's um, has had a a lot of issues with drugs and so on throughout the year. And, and in this section, he's driving the son up the eastern seaboard where he's going to drop him off at a fat farm in North Carolina and then proceed to New York where El Comandante is going to be making an appearance at the UN. Um, and Goyo is heading there for a kind of reckoning with history, as it were. Um, uh, so hang on a second. Let me, I, Went to the wrong thing here. One twenty-seven. Uh, so, so right now uh, he's outside Durham, North Carolina, and uh, he and his son are in one of what do you call it, like a strip bar type of thing. Boy, I don't know why I've chosen all of these racy sections, but <laughs> we're all adults. Okay, here we go. Durham, North Carolina. So he's Goyo, Goyo Herrera, and his son is Goyito, little Goyo. Durham, North Carolina. Goyo settled on a garish cushion next to his son and watched the semi-naked harlequin slither up and down the glistening poles. There were seven dancers altogether, but Goyo was fixated on the skinny, pliable one. She looked soft in spite of her acrobatics, boneless, as if any man could shape her flesh to his needs. Goyito was wearing a Mexican poncho and a bear mask, an outfit he claimed protected him from malevolent forces. His great Dane, the indomitable Rudy, waited in the parking lot in Goyo's newly repaired Cadillac, the windows open, a chewed rawhide in the mangled back seat. How the hell had they, had they ended up in this strip joint on the outskirts of Durham, the ob obesity capital of America, on a jag of father-son debauchery? The tempo picked up as the dancers, long-legged variations of one another, approached the cheering patrons in Rockette's fashion. They kicked their legs high, leaving nothing to the imagination. Goyo found this display distasteful in the extreme. 
A woman's treasure wasn't meant to be paraded in such sure and unseemly quantities. It seemed to Goyo that what this dancing offered, if such gyrations could be called dancing, appealed not so much to the audience's groins as to their feeble hopes. As a theatrical production, it was a disaster. His son cheered the women on along with the other men who summoned the dancers with 10 and $20 bills. Goyito had singles, which he held out in threes or fives. He had a fear of even numbers. He was probably not much different from the strip club regulars, neither talented nor burdened with superior intelligence nor extraordinary in any way. He had one unpardonable zeal, cocaine. All the rest was shaped by habit and a paucity of imagination. Goyito thumped the cocktail table with the heel of his hand, rousing the curiosity of the boneless girl. Hi, Papa Bear, she growled, bearing teeth so tiny they might have been her milk teeth. Boneless girl's nacreous flesh seemed to shimmy in every direction at once. Reluctantly, Goyo thought of his son's penis. I told you it was a priapic book. These men are just impossible. It hadn't been circumcised. Only the Jews in Cuba were circumcised, but the boy, in a drug-addled frenzy, had attempted a do-it-yourself circumcision at 16. <laughs> a string of vermilion lights flash, signaling the dancers to retreat. Hips and breasts blooming with cash, they launched into a disco number. Goya escaped the smoky club and hobbled outside. Cement clamshell fountains furred with mold framed the entrance. The parking lot was packed with locals and drive-through travelers. Goyito had begged his father to take him to Durham en route to New York so that he can enroll, enroll at the Rice House. Louisa, his dead wife, had spent many months and thousands of dollars shedding extra pounds at its weight loss program. The night was oppressively humid. Goyito's every gesture seemed to indent the air. He closed his eyes for a moment, watching the pink quivering of his lids under the bright parking lot lights. Then he reached into his guayabera pocket for the cigar he'd been saving. He lit a match, held it to the tip, puffing until the compressed leaves embraced the flame. The smoke soothed his throat, seeped through his nostrils, rolled along his palate. A fragrant scrim enveloped him. To surrender to a good cigar was to deny time's tyranny. As he smoked, Goyo had the disconcerting feeling that he was mirroring the tyrant's movements. Back at the university, people had often mistaken the two of them. They'd both been tall and handsome then, and were known to drop Latin aphorisms into casual conversations. But Goyo had been a political moderate in his youth, the opposite of that firebrand thug who was always on one hit list or another. Everyone knew he'd murdered a fellow student over some barbaric nonsense. The unfamiliar sounds of the North Carolina night unsettled Goyo. He couldn't identify a single bird song in the crickets ground out an alien whirring. Above him, at least, the skies were embossed with the same moon and stars. The older he got, the more vividly his memories of Cuba returned its dialects, its minerals, its underground caves, its, its guajitos, its hummingbirds, its fish, its chaos, its peanut vendors, its Chinese lotteries, its cacophonies, its myths, its terrors. 
Maybe this was what happened when a man approached death. Senility and longing conspired to overtake reality. Perhaps Cuba had become nothing but an imaginary place, unrelated to any truth. Goyo looked down at his feet, which loomed closer every day. Goyo, there was no denying his diminution. He recalled, much chagrined, how his daughter had ridiculed his wished-for epitaph. Here lies a Cuban hero. The last thing he wanted was to die another forgettable brooding exile in the heart of discontent. A stirring at the edge of the parking lot caught Goya's attention. A pudgy creature waddled out from a tangle of weeds. Its striped tail was unmistakable. It turned to face him, point blank and accusatory, as if to say, et tu, Goyo? The raccoon reminded him of his old social studies teacher, Father Antonio Bichette, with his triangular Spanish face and parchment skin. The Spaniard's favorite saying was, Fortis Fortuna Adjuvat. You're the one with the Latin Adjuvat. Fortune favors the bold. At one of his high school reunions, Goya learned that Father Antonio had died from septicemia in 1973 at a retirement home for Jesuits in rural Indiana. A plane blinked across the moon's path. What would Father Antonio have thought of him today? What sort of life had he led with its myopic concern for money and material comforts, its fundamental cowardice? The, sas the sacerdotal raccoon sat on its hindquarters, frozen, its front paws outstretched like calipers. Goya's cigar burned, unsmoked. He spat a speck of tobacco off his tongue. He was on his way to New York, to the United Nations, where the tyrant would speak next month. The distance between the mortal and the divine, Goyo thought, might still be bridged with one decisive act. So that's a little bit of uh, the counterpart in Miami. And, uh, and then I thought I might read um, one little, maybe a little section or two, they're not more than a page long, of some of these voices. So they're mostly women. And, um, and as I said, there, there's a, this expression in Cuban Spanish where you're like, a mi con ese cuento, like you're telling me that? What do you, take me for a fool is the, is the attitude? And that is pretty much the attitude of all of, of these little um, interstitial sections. Um, there's this one little section called Galapagos that is the only part of the book that is quite literally true. Um, when I was going around Cuba in 2011, I wasn't doing interviews exactly, but I was just finding myself uh, talking to all kinds of people and hearing their stories. And one of them was um, this artist who had built almost like this treehouse structure between two old mansions uh, in one of the formerly wealthy sections of Havana because she couldn't get any housing and, and she lived up there. And so this is... Uh, literally true. This is her voice. Um, it's called Galapagos. And um, I try and do a Cuban accent, but I've been in Texas a lot lately, and so it's like turned into something else. So, um, so forgive me. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a try. Galapagos. This is a very difficult country. Very stressful. No quieren reconocer que esto es un fracaso, an utter disaster. I waited years for an apartment in Havana until I couldn't wait any longer. I built my own place in between these two mansions in Vedavo. 
It's gloomy and narrow, but I shift the spotlight around to where I'm painting. Y me resuelvo. Me resuelvo is like, and I resolve. It's kind of the Cuban national verb is resolver. At first, the authorities considered me a squatter. Then they tried to tax me out of existence. But I parked myself here and refused to move. I live with my kitty and a baby Galapagos turtle that a friend of mine smuggled out of Ecuador. Sometimes I take Piquito to the park so he can sun himself. They tell me my turtle will live 300 years and grow to the size of a Volkswagen. But what's the use of worrying? Nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. If you chuck Piquito under the chin like this, see, he bobs his head. Oh, he loves that. My paintings, ah, naturally they have a sinister air. They're my hallucinations, my nightmares. Right now, I'm working on a series called Buscando Carne en La Habana, looking for meat in Havana. Meat, of course, in all respects. It's these disgraces that I'm driven to paint with my medieval palette, one disgrace after another. There are never any shortages of those. Saida del Pino artist. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, well, um, I'm eager to get started talking to Chris, although we, we uh, met up a couple of weeks ago in Chicago and had a six-hour dinner, but we barely scratched the surface, <laughs> so we, we should get started on this, right? All right. That was from good Jamaican food, too, and I ate all the dessert, so uh, you're, he's, he's very gracious. Uh, he lets me eat all the dessert and take the frosting off. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for your attention. All right. Thank you so much, Chris and Christina. Um, I'm going to start off with a question or two and let you take it from there. And then we'll open it up for the audience, anything you want to pose to these two fantastic writers, OK? Uh, originally, I was going to ask you both a question about how you construct a city. Because cities in your work, whether it's Lagos, LA, Miami, Havana, Las Vegas, all are vibrant characters. So originally, I, again, I was thinking, how do, how, how do you construct a city? What's your process like? And then I was thinking, as Christina was just reading just now, you know, you talked a little bit about traveling to Havana to capture voices. And I was thinking, maybe my question's wrong in terms of when you are writing about cities, a city is not just place, space, locale, architecture, whether it's crumbling or otherwise, but a city is literally a cacophony of voices and characters and stories. Um, at least the way you were writing about Havana, that I, you know, I can I can hear it, you know, I can I can smell it, I can taste it, but mostly I can hear it in in these rich voices that you create. But maybe can we talk a little bit about both of you, how you construct uh, how you construct cities, which are they literally do function like characters in your work? Maybe Christina first, and then well, Chris. Well, I, I was going to say I I've been I've heard you talk about Las Vegas and its relationship. It's like you thought of it as a Nigerian city, actually. Um, <laughs> And do you want to talk a little bit about no, that? You no, no, you start. <laughs> no, you start. No, you. Um, all right. Um, well, I, you know, the thing is, I think um, all cities are mythology, you know, really. Um, just, just the concept of a city is a mythology in itself. Because uh, it's the only way to sort of 
it's it's um, I guess it's uh, it's uh, the equivalent of of projecting out of the unconscious, right? So if you think of the forest or all those other interstitial places as the subconscious or the unconscious, and the city is is a manifestation of consciousness, and yet the entire city can only exist essentially in the unconscious, right? Which is why it's essentially just voices. But you know, I, I've loved cities. I think cities. Uh, People live in a symbiotic relationship with cities uh, that are, is often uh, overlooked. And, um, but also that I think that there's only one city in the world and I think it replicates itself. In, it's almost like those, uh, viral, those viruses you get on your computer. They just self-replicate everywhere. I remember when I first went to Vegas in 2000, I'd moved from London and I'd been in America for like a week and a half. And already I'd been disappointed by, um, by Twinkies. Because <laughs> it's growing, up, growing up as a kid, you know, I read all the Marvel DC comics and in the back of them were all these ads for Twinkies and Twinkies were like this am amazing, I just couldn't wait to eat a Twinkie. It's like, and then I ate a Twinkie and I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so, so I was already not getting off to a good start because um, it, tasted like, it tasted like a cake from Nigeria that had gone off, you know. Um, and so then my friends were like, let's go to Las Vegas. And I thought, no. They're like, no, you must go to Vegas. So we got to Vegas. I remember driving down the strip. And wait, thinking, wait, you're telling me that was a consolation trip for your experience yeah, with the, the Twinkies? Twinkies. Yeah, <laughs> Vegas. And the sea monkeys, but we won't get into the sea monkeys. <laughs> so, so, so when I, we were driving down the strip, and I remember looking at Las Vegas and thinking, this is Nigeria. Because this is what we do in Nigeria. First of all, we find a desert. Right? And then we build a city there. And then we run water 800 miles from the coast up into this desert city. Uh, and then someone will say, you know, I was in Europe and uh, I took a cruise on a ship. Can you build my house to look like the Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> <laughs> and then someone drives past it and goes, whose house is that? And they say, Mr. Johnson, okay. I was in Paris, you know, I like Eiffel Tower. Build my house to look like. So literally, it's what we do. It's like we want an Eiffel Tower, we get one. We want Caesar's Palace, we build one. Um, and then, until that moment, I hadn't realized um, in many ways how African America really is. Um, first of all, you're, all, you're on the verge of being a third world country. You know, you're just like one more loan from China away from <laughs> You're going to be cashing Western Union checks as a country very soon. But, um, but it's this whole idea of... Um, all, what Vegas offers, and I think what all cities offer, is the illusion of permissiveness. People who live in rural areas think of cities as places where anything is possible. And it's really not true, right? Because particularly Las Vegas is controlled by amazing security. And so it's this whole idea that you get to live completely uh, all of your darkest secrets. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, as long as it's approved by casino security which is a lot like American freedom. It's all good and well, as long as the NSA says it's all good and well. So I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by, by that and how um, you can almost think of cities as computer hardware and the people as peripatetic software. And so the, 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 every time people walk through a city, they change it. There's a whole pseudoscience called um, psychogeography that studies this, because I love pseudosciences. They're, they're really fascinating for nerds like me. Um, but so that's kind of, I kind of look at cities in that way. And, and I come from Nigeria, uh, and the Yoruba, uh, who are Nigerian ethnic group, uh, have the oldest cities in the world. They, they, were, the, uh, they, were, urban, they were urban dwellers 10,000 years ago, 
much before many people in the world were. So the idea of cities is something that Africans understand quite well. Yeah. yeah. I also think it's interesting, the um, allegiances people forge to place. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the case, of, I write a lot actually about, about recently about this Miami and Havana nexus uh, with a little New York and obviously Durham, North Carolina turn in. But, but, um, but I'm, I'm fascinated how, say in the case of Miami and Havana, that to me there is much a, a false dichotomy mm -hmm. of difference than as, as the people who are purporting to be so different from one another. You know, I yeah. feel like there's this, um, in so many ways, um, you know, a storm, a storm that coasts over Havana one, one hour is, is <laughs> you know, in Miami the next. Yeah. You know, the, the, the smell of the sea is the same. There's, uh, the, the vegetation is the same. So I think it fuels this sort of virulent nostalgia that's uh, it's kind of uh, impossible to escape. It becomes a sort of hothouse. And the more they protest, the more the shouting match goes on, the more you realize they're the same people. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it is a sort of strange um, megalopolis. And yet, people are so vested in, in particular kinds of separations when really it's all the same molten muck. You know? yeah. Yeah. But don't you find that happens all over the world? Like, uh, America is so invested in how different America is. But the human palate is very limited. You know, there are like nine ways you can cook food. So really, the only difference in food is geography because it's about spices. It's not really about how different we are. Yeah. And I find that the, 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 we're not as different as we like to think we are. We're specifically different, but not essentially different. So uh, I think that also feeds into cities too. And, into, and for someone like me who's lived in multiple cities across the world, I always love that. When I moved to Chicago, everyone was like, are you giving up the West Coast? Are you giving up LA? And I was like, yeah, but I gave up Nigeria, for Lagos for London, London for, you know, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a whole way in which people get invested in cities. You're right. That, yeah. that makes no sense whatsoever. That makes no sense, really. Yeah. 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 Can I just add that I think that Twinkies represents the 10th way of preparing food. So. There you go. Yeah. There you go. It's, it's the lost art of uh, Holocaust, uh, the nuclear Holocaust food. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you both a question about writing process because I'm thinking that my track record is it takes me about eight years to crank out one academic book. You each have six novels and all these books of poetry, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit, especially if we have writers out there in the audience today, about your writing process, either your daily rituals or um, your quirks, when you're blocked, how you move forward. Uh, I, would love to, I always love it when writers talk a little bit about what their creative process is like. And where do these ideas come from? Sweatshops. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Academic books are hard, though. I've been writing one for 12 years, so I understand that. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I, um, well, Chris and I have known each other quite a while now. So one of the things I, I count on very much at a certain juncture in the writing that I send my work to him, and he sends his work to me. and. Uh, and, and uh, she proceeds to destroy my book <laughs> <laughs> ruthlessly. Oh my God! And the It'll tutorials I have gotten on poetry. Well, I sent her like I sent her this book, the Secret History. I saw four, the Secret History. It was four hundred and ten pages in manuscript, and I got three hundred and fifty-ish back. Every time he tells a story, they no, cut out more. Okay, you always so. cut out. And so I get these pages back, and I call her, and I say, uh, Christina, there's like 70 pages missing. And there's a pause, and she goes, uh, Mijo, those are the pages that don't belong in the book. <laughs> 
So part of yeah. it is relying on right. the <laughs> good sense and sensibility of trusted friends and readers. But, um, but in terms of the genesis of things, they, it's more, I, I really do get the sense, for me, it's all about obsession. Sometimes it claims me, sometimes I go chasing it. Um, and, um, and I have gotten a lot less particular about ritual. And I learned that from Chris, actually, because I think when my daughter was still at home, she's now a senior in college, so I've been a little footloose the last few years. But I used to have this ritual. I, I had six hours when she was in school. And I mean, I won't even get into the rituals. It's embarrassing, the rituals. Now I can write anywhere, just like you. Uh, I mean, not just like you, but, but the way he would say I can write on planes. I, I'm completely mobile. I take notebooks. I, I write everything by hand now, initially. Uh, and I, it's, I started doing that with King of Cuba just to sort of slow things down for the octogenarians. And, um, and now I always do it because I have a notebook wherever I go and I don't need a setup of any kind. And it's just been incredibly uh, liberating. And, and that's thanks to you. Yeah, it's, I'm a lot less precious about the process. Yeah. Dr. Phil does what he can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's an important separation, ritual and process. Because yeah. I think often when the question gets asked, the question is about ritual. And, and for years when I was younger, I, my favorite word in the world was ambiance. I used to, <laughs> I used to sashay around in my ambiance. <laughs> but um, so I had to type on, a, on an old Underwood typewriter. And I can't type for shit. Um, and I, I don't drink. I've never drunk. And I always had a fifth of scotch on the desk, a green shaded lamp, cigarettes burning, because that's what real writers did. It's what Baldwin did. And, and you realize after a while that you know what, what, what you're chasing is a certain kind of romanticism that has actually nothing to do with craft or to do with process. Process has a lot more to do with your personality. You know? So if you're, um, if you're an A-type personality, you'll find yourself writing every day, all the time. But that doesn't mean you're writing anything good. It just means you're satisfying that voice in you that's, that has to like tidy things. Um, and if you're like me, you lie on the couch for months and watch a lot of reruns of Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> then you drag yourself off a couch and you type a book and you spend three months rewrite. So I write, I've always written everything by hand. And I think what I, what I do is I know I stop obsessing about... See, there are, I think part of the difficulty, too, has to do with neurosis. So there are, there are deep neurosis writers need, and those neuroses are the same neurosis every human being shares. Am I lovable? Can I be loved? Um, what is the meaning of all this? Uh, uh, should I murder my wife or not? What are the pros and cons? Um, no, I'm just kidding about the murder part. But, but what happens is a lot of younger writers get obsessed with am I good enough to write a book, and can I write a book? And yeah, you can write, anybody can write a book. So if you shift the worry away from that stuff and focus on really what the meat of what you're trying to do is, because all stories are about change and deep human transformation or the inability to transform. So if you actually start chasing that stuff, the other things fall away. And so for me, I write everywhere, anywhere. Uh, I'll drive a friend to the ER and I'll write while they're sewing up their gunshot wound. Or um, mm. I write longhand, it's easy. I write scenes and I later splice them together like you would with a movie. Um, so process is really about your personality more than anything else. It's about really knowing what your 
personal anxieties are and how to manage those. Um, and ritual is just what you do to back out of this world into the writing world. And, uh, and the more you do this, the less, the less ritual. It's like, you know, so I, I've been studying a lot of African religion. And, you know, I grew up in the seminary. I went to seminary to be a Catholic priest, got kicked out twice. Um, you know, I'm very good at that stuff. But I'm um, getting kicked out. But, you know, in church, it's always like, you know, in Omnia Patria, Filii Spiritus Santi, and there's always the incense, and it's church. But you're watching a babalao in the middle of a ritual. And then their cell phone rings, and they stop the ritual and answer their cell phone. Because in Africa, there is no separation between the sacred and the profane. It's all sacred, right? And so that mindset is really important for writers to have, that there is no separation. You're always writing. When you're thinking, when you're reading, that's process. The rest of it, that's just ritual. And that's, you know. And everyone needs ritual, you know, red vines, dipped in chocolate, whatever you need, it's all good. <laughs> I think we're going to open up to the audience now. So for those of you who have questions, here's your chance to jump into the conversation. Yes, Michelle. Because you were in the West Coast, I was curious if you ever thought about writing for TV, especially since TV informs so much of what you do. And I, when I read your work, it's very visual. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I write. I do screenplays. I write for the movies. Um, and I get. I actually made a lot of money doing that. But, you know, I always write projects that, you know, the direct, I get, so my first screenplay ever was, was driving down the, the 405, and my phone rings, and I answer the phone, and someone says, oh, hi, can I speak to Chris Barney? And I was like, yeah, who's this? Oh, it's Steve McQueen. And I started laughing. So it's like, oh, this is my friend's fucking around. So I was like, you know, Philip, stop fucking around. It's like, no, it's Steve McQueen. <laughs> so it turns out it is Steve McQueen, <laughs> who I didn't know who he was. And it's like, wait, aren't you dead? <laughs> 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 And so it turns out that it's, you know, the black director, Steve McQueen, who was an artist, and he wanted me to work with him on Fella, and from Fella, I started to work with him on Shame and started doing rewrites, and then got hired by Disney for a series of projects that are all unnamed because Disney will kill you uh, if, you, <laughs> if the contracts are, like, that big. So I do that stuff because I think anyone post, who was born post-1940 really is steeped in visual culture. I try to write for television. And that is a job and a half. You know, you're in the, there's, first of all, there's a table. You all sit around the table. Well, for those of us who don't, you have to make it to the table. So you sit around the wall first. And you write, this, so the room starts at 10 a.m. and it goes on till 2 a.m. I can't deal with that kind of pressure. And I need to be on the couch. I need, there's a lot of TV shows. <laughs> there's a lot of huluing I need to do. So I, I couldn't hack it. And, um, and TV requires, I mean, I, I definitely don't think, I think writing is a communal uh, process, I think, as we discussed earlier, but I can't do that level of communal writing. It's just, it, it requires um, a brain that is much faster than mine. But m movies, yeah, TV less so. But all the best, all the best writing now, I think, is on television, even more so than in books, you know, because, you know, literary fiction, because it denies it's a genre, has gotten lost somewhere in its own turgidness. And, and so a lot of people graduating from writing programs are really good can't get books published, end up writing for TV. And uh, with cable, TV has become remarkable. So um, yeah, I've flirted with the idea. But I don't think I can hack TV, but I can do movies. Yeah. There's no shame in that. Question in the back. Yes, um, I have a question for Christina Garcia. So a common theme in your novels is characters who try to negotiate and define their identity, and sometimes even redefine their identity once they've already had one. How could you describe your struggle or experience trying to define yourself in terms of culture and nationality? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that's kind of shifted over over the years, and um, I don't think it's I don't think it's a place you reach and go, aha, this is who I am, and it remains static. I think, like language, it's it's continually evolving, and um, and so. Uh, yeah, I think I've learned just not to take anything, uh, any particular you know, nexus of identities for you know, for granted. I, I think we all kind of shape, shift, is that a word? Shift, mm -hmm. sh shape, shift, yeah. Shift, shape? Shape, shift. Shape, shift a little bit, thank you. Um, so uh, when I'm in Miami, I, you know, I, a whole different persona goes into play. Uh, I mean, I grew up in New York City, and I, and I, took, I took my New Yorkerness for granted. It was really actually, it was not until the 80s that as a journalist, I went to Miami and found myself there in the middle of the Reagan era, <laughs> and completely alienated uh, that, that I realized, oh, what I, you know, I thought this was my tribe. I thought I belonged here, and I didn't at all. I never felt so, you know, um, uh, un at home than I had in Miami at, at, at that period. So I don't know, it's something that, that, that keeps shifting around. And um, I think the only constants for me are our mother. Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. the one that, and I just saw my daughter uh, earlier today. And um, mother and... Um, friend. And friend. Yeah. And, and uh, and I just also lose myself a lot in whatever I'm, I'm right now in World War II a lot, so I'm I'm kind of feeling like on the Eastern Front, uh, World War II. So, and you know the Cuban thing comes and goes. Uh, yeah. So I'm sorry that's so just probably very unsatisfactory, but yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yes. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between place and home, because I was interested in what you were talking about earlier about cities, um, but if you could talk a little bit about how city, um, like the relationship between cities and home in terms of like replication and sameness and difference, that would be great. Um, oh dear, is that me? I love that when you do that and it makes you sound all erudite. Um, see the thing about places, place is always storied, right? <clears throat> and so when you come to a place, there's already an implicit story that you are often trying to negotiate. I mean, a very simple example is Disneyland, you know, whose entire philosophy is to sell you the nostalgia for a childhood you never had. Because no one had that childhood they sell you in Disneyland. Um, and so, so, like, you go to New York, and there's, you know, I always get out. New York can drive me crazy sometimes. I was there a few weeks ago, and we had dinner and a friend with some friends, and one of my friends ordered bubbly water, and then everyone at the table was like, ah, we're doing tap water now. And I was like, really, water now is a cool thing? Um, and so there is a New Yorkness, I think, um, that actually when you try to boil it down, everyone thinks that there's a shared one, but it, it isn't. You know, they did that experiment in New York where people moved to the city and after five years asked them to draw a map and they drew pretty much an accurate representation of New York. And then 10 years later, it had basically shrunk to the dry cleaner, their job, and they were all like within one block of each other, even though people lived in Brooklyn and worked in Manhattan because pretty much the city becomes that. So I think that that's really what, more what home is. Home is essentially the, the narrative you create within a place uh, of comfort. And so, for me in particular, because I've been displaced a lot of my life, I was just 
displaced even in my family, in my culture, uh, biracial, you know, all these things. So for me, home has always been language and melancholy. So I'm more at home in novels and writing and reading than I, in, in, I am in any place. And so once I have those things, I can exist in any place. Um, so for me, that's really the difference that home is mobile. Like we're, essentially, we're all nomads, whether we believe it or not. And we're always, every day we leave the house, we pack up home. You know, if you actually shook out everyone's bag and looked what's inside it, that represents home for them. And those things are really important. People who always have cameras, it's really about so this need to capture and frame things, so it's to create sameness and certainty. So it's a very psychological place, whereas place exists whether, you know, sometimes before you, sometimes after you, sometimes through you, during you, it endures you, but home is something that you always carry within you, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you carry within you and it's on the page, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's your clo how you dress, how you speak. Um, you know, I have friends who uh, have no accent until they say coffee and then it's coffee. Sure. And it's immediately, and, it's, and they, they don't know they're doing it, but that's an indication of certain kinds of nostalgia. Uh, so I think it's really, I think we're all narratives. We're all walking narratives. And if you decode a person, that's why novelists are, are obsessed with characters. We're obsessed with people because what we're trying to figure out is what their story of home is and how that fits into place. Um, and then we steal that as much as we're ruthless. We're very ruthless. We will, we will jack your life in a second. <laughs> so I, I hope that makes sense. See? See? <laughs> and I'll, I'll talk to you later about my experience. But my question is about um, ambition, uh, not so much you know, whether you have ambition as a writer, I think that's a very personal question, which is not going to ask you, but whether you have particular ambitions for a particular um, novel that you're writing. And I don't mean you have to sell so many copies. It could be that too. But is, are there, is there some kind of Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 um, I don't know that I think the ambitions shift as the novel progresses. Uh, like I, I always start out a novel, for example, with this, uh, I try, I try my best to that this tentorian, authorial, omniscient voice of, you know, the Russian novels I love that usually lasts about three days. And, um, and then I start downscaling from there. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think my, my ambition, uh, probably more than anything, is, um, is to capture ca ca character in all of crenellated, uh, contradictory, specific glory. Um, and, uh, and, and also to um, sort of c complicate 
uh, and also put them in political contexts that, that complicate our common notions of, of, of um, you know, our oversimplified notions of uh, people's relationships to their environment, to, to the politics that have sort of dictated their concerns, that have divided their families and otherwise. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's that for me, is to, is to, to fully render a, a character, uh, to me, is the, is the highest am ambition, to, and to pull that off, or, or at least do one's best to pull that off, is, is probably my highest ambition. A lot comes along with that territory. But, but essentially, if they're not alive on the page, you don't, you don't have anything, for me, anyway. Maybe that sounds so modest, but it's, think about how hard it is, just the universe, the, to tra traverse from one human being to another, to really inhabit someone else completely. For me to sit here and try and inhabit, you know, get in Chris's bloodstream, understand him from the inside out, try and render him fully, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, enormous job, uh, even for people you think you know well, people who are familiar to you. Uh, I, I think the biggest gulf is between two individuals. Hmm? Yeah. Wow, I love that. The biggest gulf is between... That explains my love life. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, so it's, it's interesting because most of my training, two out of my three uh, graduate degrees are actually in critical theory. And so it's always interesting when I hear critical theorists talk about all I write is critical theory or all I write is... <laughs> all writing comes from an existential wound. Um, and, it, and it's not that the notion that we're wounded, because to be wounded is to actually not find expression, but it's, it's the discomfort of the wound. And wounds don't... Sometimes they're giant things and sometimes they're very small things. Things like you, you go to the beach and you're with your sibling and you both get ice cream cones and you drop yours in the sand and your sibling laughs at you and your mother won't buy you another one. And then from then on, you are the child that nobody loves. Um, <laughs> and this narrative propels you, you know? And so, Did I mean... That the, happen to you? Uh, well, a lot. <laughs> and that explains why I'm the child nobody loves. Oh. But, no, um, but I think that this, this existential wound determines the questions, that the, the burning question that everyone asks. You can't spend eight years writing a book about modes of transportation in, in 16th century British literature without that somehow reflecting your own sense of dislocation in the world or reflecting your own, or writing about manners in Jane Austen without that talking about your own social awkwardness. I think what happens is that the way the Academy wants us to present certain work, it seems to suck the life out of it. But all critical writing at its heart, if you really follow what the ideas are, they're deeply sensual and they're deeply personal projects that are being explored in these ways. Um, and this is why we love theorists like Sixou and, and Derrida, because they seem to just jump straight into, into the art of it all. So even like the language of Derrida, half of that is part of that sensuality of play. It's not really necessary. Um, so that I just wanted to put that out about critical writing. Um, and so, so if, like, if you were to look at all of Toni Morrison's work, for instance, all of Toni Morrison's work is centers around the question of love. And, and not necessarily the hallmark sentimental questions of love, but this troubling idea that love is simultaneously the most um, affirming thing in the universe and yet the most destructive thing. 
Um, and if you look at all her work from The Bluest Eye, which is self-loathing, to, to her most recent work through Beloved, which is a tyranny of love or the terror of love, and in jazz it's, it's jealousy. Uh, and you can, if you look at Toni Morrison's <coughs> life itself, it's fascinating. She publishes her first book at 40. Um, she's a single mother, struggling to make sense of what it means to be a black woman raising two black boys, a strong woman who's an editor for years and a college professor who can't find any men who seem to be able to be at peace. So it makes sense that she would be obsessed with love. What's beautiful is that she's able to turn what is a private neurosis and somehow project it into a larger ambition, which I think is really what your question is. Um, and I think, that, I think that just like Christina, that what all of us are trying to do as writers is to find a way to, to uh, redeem ourselves, to, to seduce the world into seeing the beauty that we actually see. And, and in that way, perhaps, uh, bridge a gap. And that's why I think literature is, 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 the, is the form that really works this muscle of empathy. Because, as you said, to bridge that gap between two human beings, it, it, it requires a certain kind of evacuation of yourself, a certain kind of surrender to uh, otherness that, that, that the, you're, you also realize that there is no way to define otherness, there's no way to occupy otherness without violence, even in its most benign forms. And so I think the ambition is always how to create these deeply personal explorations in the world that have a, a larger epic sweep uh, but at, at its heart, reveal a vulnerability that everyone can connect to. Um, Jimmy Baldwin says it best. You know, James, you know, if you read Jimmy Baldwin, sometimes you think, why am I even bothering? Um, but Jimmy used to say that your suffering means something, only in so much as other people can connect their suffering to yours, which really then suggests that your suffering only has meaning in relationship to other suffering. So people cannot feel your pain. They can approach it. They can approximate it through their own pain. And so therefore, it means that the primacy of your pain is no longer what's important. It's the openings that you can create within that that allow people to slip in. And I think the critical books do that just as well as, as literature does it. And I think you know good movies do it just as well as poetry does it. Um, I think a really good ad campaign will do it just as well as anything will do it. In a way, it's a seduction. A kind it's a of complete seduction. seduction. Yeah. I mean, there's that beautiful ad from the from the um, the Super Bowl about the kid dressed in a Darth Vader costume who seems to be turning things on with the Force, and we all thought we we that's entirely everyone's childhood. This idea that you are special and and that there is an adult world that will indulge that in a certain kind of way. So you can find that ambition anywhere you look. You just have to kind of approach it with a little less. Um, of an investment in institution and, and a much more humanness. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. I think I've been rambling for a no, bit. No, 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 no. That's completely now. right. And I think um, it's all in a, in a. I liked what you said about essentially one's sensibility and one's history and associations bearing down on everything you do. Yeah. Uh, and, and it does. You know, sometimes when people say, oh, which of your characters which of your characters is most autobiographical or blah, you know, whatever you get, sometimes these questions, and you say all of them. Yeah. You know, the deranged hairdresser, the El Comandante, the, uh, all of them, they're all a product of... Yeah, and that's yeah. why I've never asked you for a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be in big trouble then. I tried to give a haircut to a friend of ours, Poodle, and made him yeah. really botched it up. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Michelin's. I think we have time maybe for one final question. There's someone who had their hand up. And, oh, yes, go ahead. So I'm not sure if you 
question of process. I originally thought of it as a question of process, and now that you said that writing comes from this existential word, maybe it's a more existential question, but where, where, when, how do you find pleasure in writing? Um. <laughs> It's funny, you know, um, writing is, is, is some kind of practice. I don't know. Some people call it a spiritual practice. Other people call it, you know, your pre preparation for the NFL. I, I <laughs> writing is sitting with difficulty. It's really what it is. It's really a... a Wait, what did you just say? It's sitting with difficulty. Oh, sitting with difficulty. And, and, and um, because, you know, everyone thinks right, talent is important. Not really. Um, staying power is important. There are many talented singers uh, who will never have careers because they can't deal with rejection, they can't deal with ways to expand what they want to do, to include what could be larger than themselves. So for me, joy in writing is, is always... Uh, well, joy, first of all, for me, and pleasure. Joy and pleasure are very similar. They're, they're, they're no longer an emotion for me, they're an understanding. You know, because um, joy means that, you know, as the Nigerians will say, sometime good, sometime no good, right? <laughs> and the sometime no good intensifies the sometime good. Because if sometimes only good, then, you know, it kind of gets boring. That's why you live in California for 10 years, you, you, need, you need Zoloft because it's just too sunny all the time. <laughs> it mean you say it's like you're just too perfect all the time, and so you get, you, get in, you get bored by existential happiness. And so, um, so I think that um, the joy is, is in this... Um, walking this fine line. Uh, it's part of the joy is in the frustration. But part of it is, is those moments when you come back to read something and you read a paragraph and, and you have no recollection of writing that. And it's one of the most amazing things you've actually read. Not, not in like, oh, like David Blaine thinks he's the most amazing thing, but in a real like, wow, um, I can't believe I could do that. And I think that awe is really what the joy is, and that's the pleasure of writing, and you will find that awe in everything. I, I often call up, uh, we have a friend in common, Peter Honor, who we both teach writing, and I'll call him up and say, you've got to hear this sentence, and I read a sentence from one of my students' stories. The rest of the story may suck, but that sentence is this aperture into something amazing, and that's what lets you know that wherever a person is is not where they're going to end up. There's something bigger turning within them that they don't know about. So it's, I think for me, pleasure is in the awe of it. Every time you come across something that leaves you in awe, be it, be it something you read that Saeed says, be it something you read that Sontag said, be it something you read in the New Yorker, be it something, you know, if you can't have that awe outside of yourself, you can't have it with your own work, and therefore there is no real pleasure in it, because then it becomes a career, and we all know how boring that is, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. it's beautifully said. I, I think, too, just this notion of um, portals, you know, just... Um, uh, and, and sometimes you can write for days on end, weeks on end, and not really find it, and then suddenly you get traction in a, in a direction, and things begin to, to coalesce unexpectedly. I, I don't think you can plan this stuff either. You just have to kind of show up uh, again and again, and, and, um, and, uh, and I think of them almost as sort of white heat periods. Uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't ha they don't happen that often, but when they do, they, they become, in a way, the template for everything else. And, mm -hmm. and those templates, um, uh, 
will come relatively effortlessly, but not because you've been there all that time and then it coalesces. And then the rest of the book and the, or the rest of that chapter, you work like hell to, to try and get up approaching the level of the things that were, were gifts, that were gifted to you because of your, you know, your, your sitting there, your, your constant engagement. Um, I think for me that, that, that engagement, that kind of loss of self-consciousness that happens when you're deep in a work is, for me, also deeply pleasurable. Um, I think the loss of yourself, in a sense, is the most authentic presence of yourself. And uh, when things are, are working well, it's not you mm. sitting there, but you're, in, you're inside this, this stream of language and imagery.